is to take whatever copy of the scriptures you have this morning and turn to he, uh, Psalm chapter 11. Now, I know you thought I was going to say First Peter, but we'll take a little break from that this week and look at Psalm 11 this morning. This has not been an easy week. It's not been an easy month. Um, These seasons come and go. They they turn. They move. And um, we feel the press of living. We feel the the press of life. And um, let's face it, this work that God has called us to do, um, we're not alone. Certainly, we've got the God of the universe on our side with the resources of heaven at our disposal, the person of Jesus Christ, and he's living and active and powerful on our behalf, but we're also not alone in that we have a formidable enemy who would do everything in his ability and power, not unlimited, but certainly um, powerful uh, to undo us, to silence the proclamation of the gospel, to um, somehow cause those who have determined to follow after him and to proclaim his name to shrink back from that resolve. This is his work. And he's strong at it. And um, he really does not care much about your life or my life or this ministry. Or Actually, he cares quite deeply about it, but it's in very negative uh, ways that he cares. He would love to see it come unglued. He'd love to see this body severely divided. He does not want us to stand together in unity and unity of the spirit and walk forward with the gospel in this community and reach out into these homes and into these neighborhoods. He'd he'd like nothing better than for it to come to a screeching halt and for this place to just come down around itself. Make no mistake, it's very much on Satan's radar that families that have long languished in these neighborhoods, never having been touched or reached by the ministry of this church for years, are now being touched and reached and encouraged by the gospel. That is not being missed by the enemy of our souls and the enemy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just want you to know that. And we feel that press. We feel his um, fury. So this morning I, I, I want to just turn all of our hearts um, to maybe a different perspective. Um, It was probably 30 years ago when I was um, a teenager in this area growing up um, that a very powerful, compelling symbol of the Christian faith was uh, Dr. Robert Schuller, who was the pastor at the time of the Crystal Cathedral in Los Angeles, it was all glass and big organs and big choirs and a lot of stuff about positive thinking and you can follow your dreams and God will bless them and all of these things. And after a particularly difficult time in his life, he wrote a book. It was an instant bestseller and he called it Tough Times Never Last, But Tough People Do. And it became an instant bestseller. It had, had a powerful clever title. The problem was with that message in particular is that it didn't wash in life. Because my experience has been, and I'm certain that most of yours as well, is that if you live long enough on this planet, if you, if you journey long enough, 
you begin to realize that for whatever reason, for reasons none of us certainly understand or could possibly explain, often tough times do last. They last a long time. Sometimes tough people don't. The toughest people in the world, quite frankly, have often fought the hardest battles and end up and have wound up losing the war. Whether it be cancer or divorce or misunderstanding or bankruptcy or tragic accidents, a suicide. These are only a few of all too common experiences for you and for me, for families, for friends, for relatives, people that we are in relationship with and that, frankly, God has called us to serve. So my question is, what gives? Especially for Christians or those who call themselves Christians who follow after God humbly and sincerely believing that you're doing everything right, yet so much can go so horribly wrong. Where is God when it hurts? Where is his mighty power when the barometer drops to the bottom of the gauge? What is his purpose in applying such negative pressure to some of the most faithful people? And I'm not sure I have answers. Believe me, today, and late last night, and in the nights in, 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 uh, leading up to today, I, I'd give anything just to have one. One answer. But I don't. But there is one who does. And it's to whom I want to invite us all to turn. It's the almighty living God to his matchless wondrous word and come to him for perspective and for hope and for strength and for wisdom. And I want to take a brief hiatus from 1 Peter today if you'll allow me to speak to the faintest of heart. Maybe to encourage someone. Maybe someone who's weary, who's, whose knees and resolve are, are beginning to buckle under the weight of circumstances or the load of confusion or perhaps the heaviness of shock or the relentless fear or the impossible odds that have come about because of um, a loss of um, resources or perspective. Here is hope. Here in God's word. Here is perspective. Here is God in all his mysterious, fearsome, and gracious power. And in Psalm 11, the pilgrim is David. David, the shepherd king of Israel, God's anointed. He is the choice servant of God. I mean, for crying out loud, the epitaph that was given to us about David in, in the scriptures is he was a man after God's own heart. But yet here in this context... He's facing the battle of his life and ministry. Psalm 11 is a wrenching cry from a broken, desperate heart seeking God's comfort, perspective, and deliverance in a time when he needs it most. And my question is for you, my question was for all of us in the first service in Foundation and some of those who are closest to us, what do we do when life comes unglued? What do we do? What should be our perspective? What can we know and learn about ourselves and about God no matter what the outcome? Now in this, this great psalm, we, we see David. He's in some sort of horrible situation. 
We're not sure the scenario, but I'm fairly confident that it was probably around the time when his own son Absalom was laying in wait outside Jerusalem, ready to take his father's throne. Out of greed, motivated by a selfish, self-centeredness, and revenge, and all of these things. And somehow, uh, through his petty ways, he had, he had delivered unto himself the confidence of the people of Israel. And so now they were with him. And then he was able to gain the support of the military commanders. And so they were with him. So it was only a matter of time before Absalom would make his way into the city. And, and he would take from his father this rightful rule. So this is not David just having a bad day. This was not a flat tire or a dead battery or a lost wallet on the way to campus. This was not David with the sniffles. This was not David miffed because his dog had gotten out of the fence one more time. This wasn't even David stewing over a bad investment or a, or a broken ankle or somehow trying to manage a difficult family member. This is David on the brink. And I know we've got some folks in the body of Christ on the brink. David faces the battle of his life in this cry, in this prayer of anguished appeal. We see the desperate insufficiency of the human experience and the wondrous, powerful purposes of a sovereign and all-seeing, faithful God. I just want to take a look and see what kind of perspective we can gain. First of all, David says, I trust in the Lord for protection. He declares, he declares the foundation of his life, the foundation of his confidence, and it's not in himself, it's in the Lord. But he goes quickly to a question, so why do you say to me, fly like a bird to the mountains for safety? You see, that's what happens. Sudden and daunting adversity tempts us to take matters into our own hands. David says, how can you say this to me? How can you say flee as a, a bird to your mountain? Now David, no doubt in the midst of this trial, had no small number of advisors telling him what to do. That also seems like human nature, doesn't it? Remember Job's friends? Uh, they had the same spiritual gift, it seemed. Uh, the gift of empty, ill-timed words or advice for this poor and suffering friend. Somebody, somebody had David's ear. And they were telling him to run for the hills, literally to fly like a bird to his mountain. This was the response of fear. David, it's over. This is as bad as it can get. The odds are so stacked against you, you might as well pack up everything and, and head for the hills. Take matters into your own hands, David. You're not going to make it. Now, David was in Jerusalem, the hill country of Judea, just outside the gates of Jerusalem. The wilderness foreboding and treacherous. It was a fugitive's last-ditch option to escape penalty. So that, that was the essence of this council, to run and hide in the dark, kind of dangerous passes of the desert rocks and hills, to escape his own son. You see, David's reign was at stake. His sovereign rule in jeopardy. All his possessions and fortunes would likely fall into the hands of this 
this wicked son. And by the way, I want to say, (laughs) often the hardest, most painful betrayals come from those who are closest to you. Which, of course, adds to the hurt. David not only felt the harangue at the thought of losing his throne, but how could anything compare to the betrayal of someone within his own family? Someone he should have been able to trust. And how tempting it is at times like this to retaliate or to flee, to panic and run, to take matters into our own hands and try to stem the tide and fight the battle on our own. I love the praise song we sang. We're not going to win this thing. And what a powerful acknowledgement for the people of faith. This, This battle does not belong to us. This battle belongs to the Lord, but we're tempted at times like this to to take up arms, to defend our cause, but the scriptures seem to indicate that we need to resist the temptation to take matters into our own hands. David is indignant. How can you say to me, fly like a bird to the mountains for safety? By the way, If you happen to be a friend desiring to come along someone facing such daunting circumstances, I just want to give you some gentle advice. Be there. Stand with them. But stand in silence. Without compromise. But resist the urge to speak. Don't rush in and start quoting your favorite verse or offering your personal opinion. Just be there. Don't send them a book or leave them notes. Just just put your arm around them. Hold, Hold them. Don't say anything. Just be there. They'll know. They'll appreciate it. They'll be lifted. They'll be encouraged. See, the response of fear always tempts us to take matters into our own hands. But second, you see, the the response of fear causes us to focus on the circumstances. Look look what he says later on after this question. uh, Why do you say to me, fly like a bird to the mountains for safety? The wicked, you see, are stringing their bows and fitting their arrows on the bowstrings. They shoot from the shadows at those whose hearts are right. The foundations of law and order have collapsed. What can the righteous do? This is all alarm, you see. This is someone tempting David to lose all perspective by focusing on the details of the circumstance. We lose perspective when fear takes over. I mean, look at the detail. David, David, they are readying their bows. They are stringing their bows. Uh, he's, He's taking great pains to somehow... Uh, paint in, in David's minds just how insidious this assault is. They're fitting their arrows on the bowstrings. And they're, they're in the shadows, David. You're not even safe in your own palace. You can't even walk out into the hallway because uh, there's a great possibility that someone's going to take you out from the shadows. They're ready to ambush you. <laughs> Can you see the alarm here? The details. It's, 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 it's a... This fear is causing them to focus on the circumstances. And then, then the foundations of law and order have collapsed. What kind of friend is this? David, it's, it's collapsed. 
imagine. There's nothing you can do. That's what happens when we allow fear to reign. We don't look at nursery rhymes too much anymore, but I remember an English nursery rhyme called um, Henny Penny. Remember Henny Penny? Anybody remember Henny Penny out there? A couple of you? <laughs> well, story goes that uh, Henny Penny was picking up corn in the cornyard. Something landed on her head, and they corn dropped on her head. And uh, goodness gracious me, said Henny Penny, the sky's going to fall. I must go tell the king. So off she went, Henny Penny. She went along, and she went along, and she went along until she met Cocky Locky. And guess what? Cocky Locky asked her, where are you going, Henny Penny? And Henny Penny said, well, Cocky Locky, I'm, I'm going to tell the king the sky's falling. Well, Cocky Locky said, oh my goodness, can I go too? Well, sure, we can both go tell the king the sky's about to fall. And so now it's Henny Penny and Cocky Locky, and they, they keep going. And they come, they come across Ducky Daddle. Well, there's poor little Ducky Daddle just minding his own business. I don't know if it was a him or her, but I'm going to call him a him. Ducky Daddle's minding his own business. <laughs> Here comes Henny Penny and Cocky Locky. And Ducky Daddle, he wants to know too what's going on. Well, for crying out loud, the sky's falling. We've got to go tell the king. Ducky Daddle says, I'm all in. Oh, I'm all, all, I'm all for that. I'm coming too. Sure enough, they come across Goosey Poosey. Goosey Poosey finds out where they're headed. They're going to go tell the king that the sky is falling. And then they find Foxy Woxy. And Foxy Woxy goes, oh, this is an opportunity. Boy, it's all tragedy from there. They literally lose their heads over the matter. Do you see the problem? Lost perspective. The sky wasn't falling at all. That's what fear does. We lose our bearings. We start acting in bizarre fa fa fashion and form. We get everyone around us confused and discombobulated and fearful and anxious and all of these other things and it just spreads until finally people just absolutely lose their heads. The problem is it's no nursery rhyme when it happens. It's tragedy. The foundations are crumbling, David. What shall the righteous do now? No, no, see. It's fear. Now, David, by God's grace, maintains his bearings. But something happens. Look at the scriptures. At the end of verse 3, the foundations of law and order have collapsed. What can the righteous do? Now, in my copy of the scriptures... <laughs> Between the end of verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4, there's a, there's a little more white space. And I want to ask you a question this morning. What's happened? All of a sudden, David is now declaring that the Lord is in his holy temple. David's faith somehow went dramatically from being tempted to focus on the circumstances of his situation to placing a full confidence in the God of heaven. But I want to know what happened. The circumstances have not changed. Absalom is still waiting in, uh, in siege outside the city gates. 
The wicked are still bending their bows. They are still fixing their arrows on the string. They are still ready to shoot from the shadows at the upright and out. And surely the foundations are, 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 are continuing to crumble. The circumstances have not changed. What has changed in David's situation? What has changed is his perspective. Something happened dramatically between the end of verse 3 and the beginning of 4. In the white spaces of David's life, he regained his confidence in the all-powerful, faithful, sovereign purposes of God. And he declares, in the face of all of it, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his throne He's changed his focus from his own desperate circumstances which are out of his control to placing it firmly in the one and only God of the universe who has everything under his control. The Lord is on his throne. What a powerful change of confidence. The Lord's throne is in heaven, David says. Look at this. He's, he's drawing our hearts from earth to heaven. The Lord pardon me, is in his holy temple. He still rules, he says, from heaven. Great perspective. And he watches everyone closely. He's not only in control, he sees everything, every heart, every motive, every question, every thought. And he examines every person on earth, David says. This is not only a God who rules, it's a God who sees the Lord's throne is in heaven and his eyelids behold the sons of men. We got a letter, <coughs> pardon me, we received a letter I should say in, our, in the office this week um, from the, the head of Jews for Jesus. It's an international organization that brings the gospel to Jewish people around the world. And the topic of the letter of course was the Mouskowitz family. They were calling churches to respond prayerfully on behalf of Melissa Mouskowitz. Unbelievable, mysterious mystery and tragedy. This wondrous, humble, amazingly gifted servant of the Lord who's been right here in our congregation serving, faithfully, preaching. Had such an impact on our young adults about six or seven years ago. Amazing individual. So gifted. So capable. So humble. He's gone. Cut down in the prime of his life and ministry. And in a letter from Melissa that I read, she said it was just at a time when Jan and I were feeling the pleasure and margin of being able to serve together because our kids were settled. and We were enjoying this new season of ministry together. She got a call from someone in the New York City Police Department saying that her husband had been injured, but she needed them go to the hospital immediately and just a few hours later they were they were removing all life support and he's gone he's gone I don't understand that I don't understand that but David says the Lord is in his holy temple he rules from heaven His eyelids behold and test. David's new confidence not only focused on the sovereign control of God, but on his perfect justice. What he says is 
Lord. Verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord still rules from heaven. He watches everyone closely, examining every person on earth. The Lord examines both the righteous and the wicked, he says. He hates those who love violence. This is not a God, David says, who is indifferent to injustice or unjust people. David was accused of all manner of indiscretions by Absalom. We see that in the Chronicles of the Kings and in, and, and in Samuel's record. And his supporters, in their efforts to gain confidence of the people of Israel in order to kind of enact uh, this taking over of David's kingdom. David, in spite of all that, in spite of all the factless reports and hearsay in order to gain advantage over him, all the slander, all the gossip, all the false accusations, all of these things that worked against him, David rested in this notion and in this notion alone that God is just. He is perfect in his justice. And he is not indifferent toward those who act unjustly. He's the only perfect, righteous judge of all the, all the earth, and he judges and tests the motives and actions of men. Listen, um, there are times, mysteriously, when the Lord allows trials to come into, the, to, into our lives, into the lives of, of people like you who are faithful. Maybe not perfect, but you're faithful. You're righteous. You're good. And somehow he allows that in his sovereign wisdom to test us, to test your faith, to encourage you. But his actions toward the wicked are much more severe. That's what God says. That's what David is declaring here. He hates, he literally rejects those who act unjustly. In fact, he says, this is an allusion to Genesis 19, certainly He will rain down blazing coals and burning suffer on the wicked, punishing them with scorching winds. That was the fate of Sodom and the other cities near the Dead Sea as a result of their willful disregard for God's righteous laws. Now see, that's what fear does. It causes us, we're tempted to take matters into our own hands. It also causes us to Focus on the circumstances, but David is reminding us that God is in control and that he is the God of perfect and unswerving justice. Now, finally, David's resolve in trouble is to trust in the Lord's totally reliable and often unexpected, personal, and powerful presence. Look what he says at the end of this psalm. Starting in verse 6, he says, He will rain down blazing coals and burning sulfur on the wicked, punishing them with scorching winds. But for the righteous, the Lord loves justice, and the virtuous will see his face. That is a promise of the Lord's personal and powerful presence. We can't see it here in the English, but in the original language, this is a Hebrew idiom that describes for us the presence of God. You will see his face. This is God promising to show up in the middle of your adversity, personally and powerfully on your behalf. The righteous 
the virtuous will see his face. Moses, when he was granting the blessings to all the tribes of Israel, as he speaks of the tribe of, uh, of Asher in Deuteronomy chapter 33, Moses says this, he said, There is no one like the God of, of Israel who rides the heavens to your aid, and in his excellency on the clouds, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will thrust his strong arms before you and place them around you. This is God expressing his lavish extravagant, reckless love and affection on, God, on those who love him. As the hymn writer says, oh, what wondrous love is this, oh, my soul, oh, my soul. You will know and have and feel the Lord's personal and powerful presence in the darkest and most fierce trials. I'll tell you what, I really wish you could have all been in foundations this morning, because our sister was here, Paula Bland, right here with her family. At the end of that service, it was remarkable. She came forward and knelt at this altar, and the whole place whole place came forward, put their arms around her, fell beside her, called on the Lord on behalf of her and her family. It's Paula Bland experiencing the personal, powerful presence of God through the ministry of God's people. show up through his word he'll show up at the throne of grace when you call upon him on behalf of your family he'll show up through his people he'll show up in your small group he'll show up in the midnight hour when you're calling on the lord the bedside of your children he'll show up he has a promise he will promise his personal and powerful presence on your behalf My son Jacob was little. He's not little anymore. Finally moved out of his crib. He graduated from his crib to the big boy bed. Sorry, Jake. He had a little fear of the dark. Who doesn't? And so, at times when it just was better if, if I laid with him as he went to sleep, and often I'd sing, I'd sing a hymn. Poor kid, his dad was a church music major, so he got hymns. So I sang, sang hymns to him, just kind of calm his little mind. He's going off to sleep. He's tiny, he's a tiny little guy. Too big for the crib, but, you know, ready to, you know, a little bit, but a little afraid of the dark. And so I sang, and as I sang, just kind of get feeling, just start to relax in his breathing. And every once in a while, in the middle of a song, Jacob would take his little hand, he'd reach over, and he'd put his hand on my shoulder. Just to make sure I was there. And I'd say, Jacob, I'm here. I'm here, Jake. He'd kind of lean back over, and I'd start to keep singing. <laughs> Over another verse, he'd kind of sing, quietness in the darkness. And every once in a while, then later, a later, few minutes would pass, and he'd take his little hand, and he'd just kind of reach over, and just make sure I was still there. Say, I'm here, Jacob. I'm here. A few more minutes would pass. And one 
last time and kind of reach over and just make sure I'm still there. I'm here, Jacob. Eventually just went to sleep. doesn't need that in the dark. David needed it. David needed a way to just in the middle of his challenge of his life to reach just reach over feel the powerful personal presence of God in his life. John and Paula Bland need that. Melissa Mouskowitz this morning, she needs that. You might not need it today. But I'm here to tell you, you're going to need it someday. And God says, listen. I will never leave you. Never. Never. Let's pray. Lord God, today we want to acknowledge you and call upon you, Lord. Forgive me, forgive us for being so weak and fearful. So easily succumbing to these fears and temptations. Oh God, I just pray, I pray that you would renew our confidence in you. Cause us more and more to release this silly trust in ourselves and place it fully and wholly upon you. No matter what. And I do pray for our friends, Don and Paula, this morning. No matter what transpires, I pray, oh God, that you will be faithful to them and gracious to them. That you will hear their cries for mercy and help. I pray for the body of Christ at First Baptist North Terre Haute that we would be ready and willing and available to empty ourselves for them and anyone like them who has need. No matter how difficult it might turn, Father, cause us to repent of our selfish, petty ways. We're so convinced of ourselves, but rather, Lord, to realize that apart from you, we are lost. We are desperate. Were it not for your mercies, we'd all be consumed. And so, God, help us to go there, genuinely authentically go there 
Stop acting big. Start acting like Christ. Father, fill this altar with your people this morning. Be willing to just slip out of their comfort for a moment and call them you for these dear people. I ask you, do this in Jesus' name. Stand and sing together.